All right. So, dispersing temporary, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1. So, everyone, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. But also, place a little bookmark in Colossians chapter 2. So, Colossians chapter 2, put a little bookmark there because we're going to go there uh, shortly after we read 1 Peter. But our main text is going to be 1 Peter chapter 1. We're in 1 Peter, and we're you know, just seeing what Peter had to say to the believers who were dispersed at that time and, you know, how he encouraged them. It's appropriate for our time right now because he's talking, he'll be talking a lot about suffering and all that stuff. So it's just appropriate for, for our current climate. Um, but as always, you know, our, our main verses are going to be verses 17 through 21. But we're going to start from verse 1 so that we can get the context of everything that is being said because this is a letter. <laughs> So when you read a letter, you don't start at the middle, you start at the beginning. So let's start 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 21. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So the title of tonight's message is Precious Redemption. Precious Redemption. 
And if you're taking notes, the three points that we're going to be going over tonight is point number one, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Point number two, the hidden lamb. The hidden lamb. And point number three, death is weak. Death is weak. So our first point, judgment is coming. We're going to focus on verse 17. In verse 17, he says, if you address us, Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth. Peter gives a qualification. He says, if you address as father, the one who will impartially judge, if you address as father. I remember years ago, I was listening to the Frank Sontag show. Some of you guys may be aware of this show. It's on KKLA. Well, he used to be on KKLA. Uh, It's like a talk show. He'll talk about different topics and people will call in and, you know, just dialogue about these things. But this one particular show, this person, um, Frank Sontag, brought up an email that someone had sent him. And this person was looking for advice on their their situation. So this person and their spouse, who was emailing Frank Sontag, they have two children. Or, yeah, they have two children. A daughter who had a child out of wedlock with her boyfriend. And uh, they also had a son who was a professing homosexual. And the question that was being posed was how they should handle their son wanting to bring over uh, his boyfriend to the house. And so the, the parents would tell their son that they didn't want him bringing any of his boyfriends over because homosexuality is a sin, and they're believers, so they don't want to condone that. And the son would bring up the fact that, well, the daughter was having premarital sex with her boyfriend, and they even had a baby because of it, uh, so that it, wasn't, it was unfair. And so the person who emailed Frank Sontag was like, well, what do we do? You know, we, we want to reflect Christ and be gracious, but we also don't want to condone uh, or approve of any sinful lifestyles. You know, and many people were calling in uh, and providing their input. So I was like, oh, let me, let me call. You know, let me, let me call in and see, you know, see if I can provide my two cents. Uh, not that I think it's worth anything, but I was like, hey, why not, you know? And so, you know, many people, when they were calling in, they were talking about, you know, not allowing, you know, the, the son to, you know, to bring his boyfriends to the house, you know, you know keep, keep, that, keep that out of your home. But, uh, but they would say that the baby daddy was okay uh, to be in the home because although the baby came from sinful behavior, uh, he's now just trying to be a father to his baby, you know? And so when I called in, uh, my perspective was that everyone was focusing on the wrong thing. Uh, the issue isn't that these parents need to police the behavior in their home and try to make their son or daughter conform to a specific Christian standard, the issue is that both of their children were unsaved people, and they they both need to repent of their lifestyles and believe in the gospel. Because if these parents were as concerned about their daughter's sexual behavior as they were about their son's sexual behavior, then maybe she wouldn't have had a baby out of wedlock. It seemed like they were focusing on the wrong thing. There's, there's two different issues going on in this situation. The first issue, keeping your home holy. Keeping your home as holy as possible. That's one issue. The second issue is your children need to be born again. They need to be born again. That's the second issue. You have unsaved children. But it seemed like they ignored both of those things, and everybody who was calling in, they were ignoring these two issues and they were thinking, well, our children need to behave like Christians because we're Christian. No, your children need to be born again 
so that they can have the spirit of God inside of them, which will move them to live holy. That's the issue here. But until then, you need to keep your home holy. Sure, you need to keep your home holy, and that means across the board. So no, son, you can't bring your boyfriend into this home. You just can't. That's not how we do things here. It reminds me of parents who, my mom was one of them, parents are like, you know, if you're going to drink, I'd rather you drink in the home so then I know you're safe. Uh, no, that doesn't work. It's still sinful behavior. If you're, if you're going to go out and steal, I'd rather you, you be at home and steal so that I know you're safe. Son, if you're, if you're going to be gay, I'd rather you just be gay at home so that I know you're safe. It doesn't work that way. So, no, you can't. And then also, no, daughter, you cannot have your boyfriend in your room and be alone. That's how you got in the mess in the first place of having a baby out of wedlock. So no, daughter, if you want to do that, you can go ahead and get married and move out. So as for me and my home, we will serve the Lord. So that's the issue here. The son and the daughter in that email, they do not address as father the one who will impartially judge. That's the issue. They are not his kids, and he is not their heavenly father. So what Peter writes after if you address as father the one who impartially judges, this wouldn't apply to them. This would not apply to them. This applies only to the true Christian, to the child of God, to those who have been adopted by God and will be in heaven with him forever. If you address the impartial judge as father, this is what the Spirit says through Peter. Conduct yourself in fear during your temporary stay on earth. Peter says we need to live with the fear of God's impartial judgment if we are believers. We need to live out our lives with the fear of God judging us. But in what context? Because, you know, I thought when God judges us, when we stand before him, he's going to forgive us because of what Jesus did on the cross and our faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Well, turn to Colossians 2. Hopefully you did bookmark it. Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 13 through 14. It says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So yes, we as believers, when we stand before God, he will judge us based on our faith in Jesus Christ, plain and simple. And if we have that saving faith, then he will welcome us into the kingdom and into our inheritance, for sure. But now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There is another judgment there is another judgment awaiting us when we stand before God. Not the, not the judgment of our sin. We're not going to be judged on our sin. That was taken care of on the cross. And now there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 10 through 15. It says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So the judgment that still awaits the believer is the judgment of our works for the kingdom. That's the judgment. What are you doing for the kingdom of God? What work are you putting in to further God's kingdom and the gospel? The answer to these questions determines the rewards that you will receive and see in heaven. If you're a believer, you will be in heaven regardless. If you're a believer, you'll be in heaven regardless, but what kind of treasures are you storing up for yourself in heaven? God didn't save us just to save us, and then we go on about our merry way being saved. That's not why he saved us. He saved us so that we can be used to save others. When Jesus called his first disciples, they were fishing. And he told them, hey, follow me, because now you're going to be fishing for men. And that's the task that has been given to all believers, all of us. That's for all of us. And as I said before, not every fisherman has a large commercial boat with large commercial nets attached to it. Those fishermen are like the, the evangelists like Billy Graham or Greg Laurie. You know, there are, evangel- there are other fishermen, they have medium-sized boats with medium-sized nets. Other fishermen, they have really small boats with a bunch of fishing rods scattered throughout the boat. And there are other fishermen that just have one fishing pole, one fishing pole, but they're all fishing. They're all fishing. Likewise, we are all fishermen, and we have all been given different fishing equipment according to our gifts and our talents. We may not have large fishing nets, but we all, at the very least, have one fishing pole. So take the time to go fishing. Take the time to share. Because when you stand before God, you want to have something to present to him during this judgment that is coming. Sometimes I think of, you know, the people who spend their entire lives in the, in the pursuit of something. Like they just, they put in all this work, the majority of their lives, in the pursuit of something. But without Christ, when they stand before God, it's all going to be meaningless. Even if they spent their entire life pursuing the cure for an incurable disease and they found it, when they stand before Christ, that's not going to save them. They're still going to be judged if, if they stand before God without salvation in Jesus Christ. But then I think about the Christians who spend their lives in the pursuit of something other than Christ. You know, they spend so much time in the pursuit of financial success or education or athletics or, you know, becoming a, an influencer or a famous actor or whatever. You know, whatever they're pursuing, these Christians who are spending their lives pursuing these things, and Jesus is just like an afterthought. It's just like, yeah, I'm a Christian because I was born in America or whatever. Like, Jesus is just an afterthought. And I'm not talking about the people who, who pursue these things but you look at their lives and you can tell that they live a life in obedience to Christ. And then when they get the accolades from people, they say, not, it's not me, all glory to God. And you, and you know that they mean it because of the way that they live their lives. I'm talking about the people who they achieve these great things, 
They get the accolades for the things that they're pursuing. And they're like, eh, I just thank the man upstairs, you know. Like you could tell, like, there's no real relationship with Jesus, even though they, they profess to be Christians. If you're pursuing Olympic gold, pursue Olympic gold. Go ahead and do it. But don't forget the real reason that God saved you. It's to share the gospel. If you're pursuing a successful career, pursue a successful career. Do it. But do it in Jesus' name. Don't forget why Christ saved you so that you can share the gospel with those around you and give glory to God for everything good that happens to you. Everything. Because it's only because of him. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel because you think that people are going to think less of you or you think it's going to hurt your chances of success. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is much bigger than the goals that we have here on this earth. It's more valuable than that. So if you're a child of God, you will be judged by your heavenly father on what you did for his kingdom while you were temporarily here on earth. So, as Peter says, be fearful as you anticipate that day. Be moved by the anxiety of having nothing to show for your salvation on that day and allow that to cause you to begin putting in work for the kingdom of God. Many of you are familiar with the movie Saving Private Ryan. How many of you guys have seen it? Saving Private Ryan? A good amount of people. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's a pretty good movie. It's a war movie. Here's the basic plot. So there's these... Uh, there's this group of brothers. This mother has like five sons. Last names are Ryan. And four out of five of the, of the sons die in World War II. And so in order to keep this woman from losing all of her children to this war, uh, they decide to send a, a small group of guys to go behind enemy lines to go find this guy, the, the one remaining Ryan, Private Ryan. They get sent behind enemy lines to go find him so that they can bring him home. And as, you know, they're going behind enemy lines doing that, people start dying. You know, people get shot. Uh, another person gets shot. You know, people just start dying just as they're looking for this guy. And eventually they find him. And towards the end of the movie, there's like this intense battle scene where basically everybody else who had survived the trek of looking for, for Private Ryan, everyone dies except for two, except for two of the other soldiers. And the guy who was leading... These, these soldiers to go find Private Ryan. His name was Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks. And so this intense battle scene, they end up, you know, the reinforcements come, so, you know, the, the Germans are surrendering and all that stuff. But Captain Miller, uh, he gets shot, and he's, he's just, he's sitting there on the floor, and he's bleeding out, and Private Ryan goes up to him, and Captain Miller brings him close, and he says, earn this, earn this. Basically, what he's saying is, like, don't, don't make our deaths be in vain. Like, all, we, we all risked our lives. The majority of us lost our lives for you to still be alive and make it back home. Earn this. Don't waste this. And at the end of the movie, Private Ryan, is, he's an old man, and he's standing at the gravesite of Captain Miller. And, uh, you know, he's the, Captain Miller was the one who told him, earn this. And he's at the gravesite, and, he's, and he just he says, he speaks to the dead Captain Miller. He says, every day I think about what you said to me on that day on the bridge when he was dying. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope at least in your eyes I earned what all of you have done for me. 
What did they do for him? They gave their lives up for this one man. They all, except for two, but they all lost their lives so that this man was able to keep his. They paid the ultimate price for him to be able to live the rest of his life. And as he approached the end of his life, as Private Ryan approached the end of his life, he was feeling the anxiety of not living up to that sacrifice because the sacrifice that they made was so great. Which leads us to our second point, the hidden lamb. The hidden lamb. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's read our verses again. First Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So for our second point, the hidden lamb, we're going to focus on verses 18 and 19. And the first thing that I want to highlight from these verses is that our lives before Christ were futile. Our lives before Christ, our lives without Christ, are futile. What does that word mean? What does that word mean in the Greek? It means devoid of force, devoid of truth, devoid of success, devoid of result. It means useless and of no purpose. In speaking about our lives before Christ, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were children of wrath by nature. This is how we were born, because of our sin that we inherited from our forefathers. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. You know, they were living in God's perfect creation. And God told them they can eat any fruit from any tree except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He told them that they would die if they they did it. And they did it. They were deceived by the serpent, but they were also just fulfilling the desires of their own heart. They wanted that fruit. They wanted that forbidden fruit, despite what they already knew, that it would lead to death. And that's the power of sin. Sin is alluring. Sin is tempting. Sin is deceiving. They committed sin by disobeying God, and then they died spiritually. Their connection to God was severed because of their sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says that, God's eyes are too pure to approve evil, and his eyes are too pure to look at wickedness with favor. Psalm 5.5, it says that the boastful will not stand before God's eyes, and he hates all who do iniquity. He hates all who do iniquity. Adam and Eve became filled with and enslaved to the very thing that God despises, sin. 
and then they died spiritually. And now, according to Romans 5.12, this spiritual death has spread to all humans because we all sin. In John 8.34, Jesus said that all who commit sin are slaves to sin. You're a slave to sin if you commit sin. And that's all of us. That's all of us. From the moment that we are conceived, we are slaves to sin. Psalm 51, verses 4 and 5, it says, this is David speaking to, to the Lord. He says, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So we received this sin-cursed, spiritually dead, futile way of life from our forefathers, and this inheritance was ours from the moment that we were conceived. But what does Peter say about this futile way of life? He says that we were redeemed from this futile way of life. Redeemed. That is an amazing word. It's a beautiful word. Do you guys remember the movie Aladdin? And for you young folks, I'm not talking about the one with Will Smith. I'm talking about the original Aladdin. Who remembers the original Aladdin, the cartoon? There you go, baby. Old people. Yes. <laughs> the original Aladdin. Well, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, uh, which if you're not, shame on you. No, but So Aladdin, he's this thief. He stumbles upon a lamp, rubs it. Genie comes out and says, you know, you're the owner of this lamp. I grant you three wishes. Any three wishes that you want, I will grant them to you. Aladdin had fallen in love with this princess named Jasmine. But it was according to law, she's not allowed to marry anybody who's not a prince. So Aladdin says, make me a prince so I can marry Jasmine. And he does. Um, but Genie, he's enslaved to the lamp. He's a slave in this lamp. And he's enslaved to whoever owns the lamp. Whoever holds the lamp and rubs the lamp, Genie is a slave to this person forever. There's no getting out of it. So he makes Aladdin a prince. All this stuff happens. And then by the end of the movie, Aladdin, like, everything gets ruined. And he has one wish left. He has one wish left, and he could either wish to be a prince again so that he can get the girl and marry Jasmine, or he could wish that genie be set free, that genie be set free from his enslavement to the lamp and whoever holds the lamp. So what he does is he sets genie free. He makes a wish to set genie free. He sets genie free. He redeems genie from his slavery to the lamp and to whoever possesses the lamp. And the price that Aladdin paid to redeem Genie was Jasmine. It cost him the girl. Of course, he still gets the girl because it's a cartoon and you know, everyone lives happily ever after in these cartoons. So Aladdin never actually feels the pain of the redemption of redeeming Genie. But Genie was redeemed because of what Aladdin did. But what does Peter say? about our redemption? What did it cost for us to be set free from our slavery to sin, from our futile way of life? It didn't cost a princess. It didn't cost silver or gold or anything perishable. Those things would have never been enough to pay the price, to pay the debt that we owed because of sin. It wouldn't have been enough to redeem us. The only payment that would have been acceptable is the death of the one who committed the sin. The wages of sin is death, it says in Romans 6.23. 
And this is the price that Jesus came to pay. The price that Jesus Christ paid for our redemption was his precious blood. He gave his own life for yours so that you could be set free from your slavery to sin and be made alive to God. You hear stories of people jumping on other people during you know, uh, active shooter events in order to shield them from the bullets that are coming at them. They, risk, they, they give their lives for the person that they're protecting. You hear stories about soldiers who, who hop on grenades so that their fellow soldiers don't get impacted by the grenade. My brother actually knew somebody, he was friends with somebody who did that when my brother was in the Marine Corps. You hear of soldiers going into hostile territories with no guarantee of safety in order to extract their countrymen to safety, losing their lives in the process. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking of the incident depicted in Black Hawk Down when those two snipers, they, they go into Mogadishu to save that helicopter pilot and they end up losing their lives. It's a true story and they got the Medal of Honor posthumously. And now the chaos in Afghanistan, you know, I'm sure there are many men, many people that are just waiting for the green light. Just send me in and we'll take care of it. They're willing to risk their lives for others. They give their lives and they're willing to give their lives for the benefit of others. And that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did for us. Except what Jesus did was on a scale that no other human being could even fathom. You can't fathom the sacrifice that he made. In John 1.1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that came into being. Jesus Christ was not only the son of God, not only was he the word that became flesh, but he himself was also God, and not a single thing that was ever created was created apart from him. Jesus Christ was the creator God. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus Christ is part of the triune Godhead, frequently referred to as the Trinity, which comprises of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three in one, one God, three persons. How does it all work? I don't know. I'm not God. If I could explain it to you, I, I, I'd be God. But God is somebody that we can't even fathom. He is more complex than anything. He's the creator. But Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ who existed as God, reduced himself to the form of a man, subject to the weaknesses and the temptations of humans, yet he was sinless, as it says in Hebrews 4.15. There was no reason for Jesus Christ to be crucified on the cross, no just reason. He did nothing to deserve that kind of punishment, that kind of treatment. He never once sinned, he never once broke God's law, his own law, Despite having all of our weaknesses, he was perfect, Jesus was. But he went to the cross so that he could take upon himself all of our sins. All of the sins of humanity were placed on him while he hung on the cross. And while he hung on the cross, God the Father 
poured out his wrath and anger on his one and only son. He crushed him. Isaiah 53 says that it pleased God to crush him, to crush his one and only son. How's that? I can't imagine doing that to my son. I love my son. I would never want to harm him. But it says that God the Father, he was pleased to crush his son. Well, because on the cross, Jesus Christ became us and our sin, and God hates sin. As stated previously, God's eyes are too pure to approve of evil, of sin. He can't look at sin with favor. He hates all who do iniquity. So he poured out his wrath on his son, and it was pleasurable to him because his justice was being served. And by the time Jesus breathed his last breath, God's wrath was satisfied. There was nothing left to pour out. Jesus took it all, and he died. That's the price that Jesus paid to redeem us, to set us free from our slavery to sin, to redeem us from our futile way of life that we inherited from our forefathers. And Peter says not only was this blood of Christ precious, but it was also like that of a spotless and unblemished lamb. He's looking back to the Old Testament. And so will we. Let's go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Second book of the Bible, for those of you who may not know, Exodus chapter 12. Peter's making an Old Testament reference when he compares Christ to an unblemished and spotless lamb. Exodus 12. So what's going on here in Exodus 12, before we read the verses, is the children of Israel have been enslaved in Egypt. They're slaves. Egypt, in Scripture, is always representative of slavery. Anytime Egypt is mentioned, it's, it's, it's representative of slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to the world. It's the old self before coming to Christ. As many have said, before Christ, the B.C. days. So they're enslaved in Egypt, but God has a plan for their redemption, to set them free from their slavery in Egypt, from their futile existence. And in the same way, he had a plan to set us free to redeem us from our slavery to sin and from our futile existence. God sends Moses and Aaron to talk to Pharaoh, telling him to let the children of Israel go free. Let my people go. Some of you have seen that movie about, what is it? About Moses. I forget what it's called. Prince of Egypt. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Peter, where were you on that one, man? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so let my people go. And this begins the cycle of Pharaoh saying, no. And then God causes a plague against the land of Egypt and the people of Egypt. And then Pharaoh says, okay, you guys can go. Just get this plague that God caused to stop. And then when the plague stops, Pharaoh changes his mind. He's like, you know what? No, you guys can't go. Which then causes God to bring another plague against the land of Egypt and the people of Egypt. And then Pharaoh responds with, okay, you guys can go. Just get this plague to stop. And then the plague stops. And then Pharaoh again responds with, actually, no, I changed my mind. And the cycle repeats. It repeats a few times. And the plagues that, that, that God used consisted of turning the Nile River into blood, flooding the land with frogs, then with gnats, then with flies, then killing the Egyptian livestock, uh, then 
causing, oh, uh, causing the Egyptian people to have boils on their skin, uh, and then hail falling from the sky, uh, destroying property and vegetation, and then sending locusts to eat whatever vegetation was left after the hail, and then causing darkness to fall over the land of Egypt. Like during the day, it was just dark, darkness, a thick darkness that you could feel. And all of this happened to the Egyptians. None of these plagues affected the children of Israel. None of them. But then God decides he's going to finish the job. He's going to finish the job one last plague to set his people free. To set them free from their slavery, to redeem them from their slavery in Egypt, from their futile existence. So let's read Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are, each, uh, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to him, nearest to his house, are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the homes where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, God gives instructions to take a one-year-old unblemished male lamb and kill it. And spread the blood of the lamb on the doorframe of, of their home. He tells the people to do this. Now, Peter, he compares Jesus to an unblemished lamb. In John 1.29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So there's a parallel here. Jesus is the Lamb of God, same as the Passover lamb. And what they were to do is they were to cook up the lamb over fire. They were to cook the lamb over a fire. The eternal punishment for a sinner is eventually going to be the lake of fire, burning and suffering forever. The lamb was to be cooked with fire, which corresponds to Jesus taking the punishment for us sinners. He went through the lake of fire for us on our behalf. And they were to eat the lamb with the side of unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So the bitter herbs represented their, their bitter slavery. But in John chapter 6... Jesus says, he who eats my flesh 
will have eternal life, and he who eats my body, which is bread, will live forever. Now, in the Bible, eating usually corresponds to believing. Jesus wasn't advocating cannibalism here. So the Israelites, they ate the lamb, and they ate the unleavened bread, and now we, we eat the lamb of God, and we eat the bread of life, which is Jesus. We believe in Jesus. And whatever wasn't eaten that night, they were to burn it up, burn it up completely, destroy it. None of it was to remain until morning. The Passover lamb had to be completely destroyed. It had to take all of the fire and be reduced to nothing. Jesus took the complete wrath of God. Nothing was spared. He became sin, and that sin was completely destroyed under the force of God's wrath. And the Israelites had to eat the Passover lamb fully dressed, ready to go. Said that they had to have their loins girded, their shoes on, with their walking sticks in their hand. That's how they had to eat it. And we, as we feast on the lamb of God and the bread of life, we need to be ready to go too. You guys remember a few weeks ago, the message entitled Six Words? What were the six words? Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. So as we engage with the Messiah through faith, as we feed on the Lamb of God and the bread of life, as we believe in Jesus, we must be ready for action. And what was going to happen was that God was going to go through the land of Egypt and any house that didn't have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he would kill the firstborn male of that house, both human and animal. The book of Revelation says that we have a door at our hearts. And if we don't have the blood of the lamb of God on that doorframe, then when we stand before him, he will kill our firstborn. And how were we firstborn? As sinners, by nature, children of wrath. We will be eternally judged in hell and to the lake of fire if we don't have the blood of the Lamb of God covering our hearts. But let's read how this all turned out. Exodus chapter 12, let's jump over to verse 21, and we're going to read through verse 32. It says, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families, and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? What does the Passover mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed down, they bowed low, and they worshiped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now it came about, verse 29, now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night 
he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. And then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, this is what Pharaoh said, he said, rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go, and bless me also. He was shook. So two things to point out after reading these verses. Number one, the blood of the Passover lamb protected the Israelites from God's judgment on Egypt. If God saw the blood, he passed over them. So the blood of the lamb protected the Israelites from God's judgment on Egypt. The second thing, the death of the firstborn son, the death of the firstborn is what caused Pharaoh to release the Israelites from their slavery. So the blood of the lamb saves us and the death of the firstborn son redeems us. The blood of the sacrificial lamb saves us from experiencing God's wrath and the death of God's one and only son redeems us from our slavery to sin. It sets us free. And this is where Peter grabs this comparison of Jesus to the unblemished lamb, the Passover lamb that saved Israel from God's judgment and when they were set free from their slavery in Egypt. Likewise, we have been saved from God's judgment because of the blood of the lamb. And likewise, we have been set free from our Egypt. We've been set free from our slavery to sin. We've been set free from our futile way of life because of the firstborn son's death. The word of God is amazing. There are so many parallels in scripture, it's crazy. It's like how it's been stated before, like Jesus Christ is in the Old Testament concealed, and then he's in the New Testament revealed. He's throughout the whole Bible. He's throughout the entire Bible. And that's because Jesus Christ coming into this world was always part of the plan. And this leads us to our short and final third point, death is weak. Death is weak. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1 again and read our verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So as we went over a few weeks ago, this salvation plan was set. It was set in motion before the foundation of the world. The fall of man, when Adam and Eve sinned, it was not a surprise to God wasn't shocked by it. He allowed it to happen. He allowed it to happen so that he could tangibly show his love to us in Jesus Christ and to glorify himself in him forgiving us of our sins. Christ dying on the cross wasn't an impulsive, accidental, like adapting to the situation, like, oh, snap, something happened. I got to make sure I provide a way out for them. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was already laid out before God even said, let there be light. That's why the prophets, they were so curious about it when they were writing about it. And that's why the angels are curious about it as, as they watch it unfold. And although we do have a measure of understanding of this gospel, we still don't fully get it. 
we still don't fully get it. I believe that one aspect of eternity in heaven is going to be us spending forever trying to understand the depth of this gospel. This gospel is crazy. Unholy, unrighteous people saved by a holy, righteous God for no reason other than the grace and the love of God. It's bewildering. Like, why would he do that? We, get, we have given him no reason to do that for us, but he did. So we're going to spend forever trying to figure that out, and we're never going to fully get it because God is eternal. But Peter says that the plan was always set since before the beginning, and that he finally, he finally came, that Jesus Christ finally came and fulfilled the plan for us. He finally came and fulfilled the plan for us. He chose to finally reveal the plan, and it was to our benefit in this specific time in history. What a blessing. Like, we live, in a, we live in an amazing time in history. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. Like, we could have existed in a time when there was still no hope for sinners and that the Jews are still waiting for their, the first coming of their Messiah. They were waiting for the Messiah to come and to reject him. We could have been living in a time like that. But no. Instead, we're in this particular time in history where we have the Messiah and we know that he's for all people and now we're waiting for him to come back so that he can make good on his promise of us being in heaven with him forever. We live in a great time in history and we've been able to come to this saving faith in God because of what has been accomplished in Christ. He died for our sins but not only that, he rose again from the dead. He rose again from the dead. Let's all turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we begin to conclude tonight's message, and as the band uh, makes their way up here, if they would be so gracious. So God the Father raised up Jesus from the dead to prove that sin and death have been defeated. And now, through him, we can defeat sin and death too. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55. It says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin and death don't have lasting power over us anymore. We believers will, will eventually die physically, but we will rise again because now we are alive spiritually through faith. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go to verse 20. And we're going to read through 22. Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ all will be made alive. In Adam, all die. That's the first man. That's the first birth. When we are first born, we are born dead in our sins, children of wrath, sinners destined for hell and the lake of fire. But in Christ, all will be made alive. Christ is the second man. And that's the new birth, being born again spiritually. When we are born again from above, the Holy Spirit now lives in us. We are sealed with God's Holy Spirit, and we are destined for heaven. 
we will resurrect from the dead. We will resurrect from the dead the same way that Jesus did. And because we have this hope of resurrecting from the dead, we conduct ourselves in fear, knowing that our time is temporary here. Our time on this earth is temporary. It will end. And we will stand before God and we will await his judgment of our deeds for his kingdom. Not judgment for salvation, but our work for the kingdom of God because of our salvation. Now, this, this message is specifically for believers, as is the entirety of the Bible in actuality. It's for believers. If you do not have a saving faith, if you do not have a saving faith in and a relationship with Jesus Christ, then the only things in the Bible that apply to you are the parts where it talks about judgment and condemnation. But it doesn't have to stay that way. You know, you, for those of you who don't know Christ, you've been here all night. You heard everything that has been spoken of extensively about us being dead in our sins, destined for hell, but God sent his son to die on the cross for us to take our sins and to take our punishment on our behalf. But the Bible says in John 3.16 that God shows his love for us in this way, that he sent his one and only son to die for us so that those who believe will not perish but have eternal life. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And your faith must be coupled with repentance, which is to turn away from your sins. Stop sinning. Stop going places where you will sin. Stop hanging with people who are going to cause you to sin. Stop doing things that are starting points for sin. Just stop. And replace those habits with holy and righteous ones. Read your Bible. Pray when you're alone and pray with other believers. Fellowship with other believers. Surround yourself with other Christians who have the same goal of obedience to Christ. So we're going to pray right now. And I want, for those of you who don't know Christ, there's new people here, so I don't know all of you guys. But I just want you to think about what's been stated tonight. And I'll be inviting anyone who wants to make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ to do so. And like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, I am an ambassador for Christ. I am an ambassador for Christ and God is making an appeal to you through me tonight, for those of you who, who may not know Jesus. God is making an appeal to you through me. And I am begging you, I am begging you on behalf of Jesus Christ. If you don't have faith in Jesus, I am begging you on behalf of Jesus Christ to be reconciled to him. So let's pray.